I'm just gonna turn it off. Okay, and what about, can you hear my pacemaker? No, not yet. Soon. Hey, it's Jeffrey Masters, and I want you to know right off the bat that this episode with Carson Kressley is COVID-free. We do not talk about the pandemic, we don't talk about the election, and we absolutely do not ever once utter the name of our current president. That is my gift to you and also myself, if we're being completely honest. So Carson Kressley, yes, this is a man who seems to always be on our TVs. Since premiering on the original Queer Eye, Carson's been a longtime judge on Drag Race, had his own show on OWN, hosted the Bravo design show Get a Room with Tom Felicia. He's also done Dancing with the Stars and Judge Miss America. Carson Kressley has been busy since Queer Eye. And that show, which really was a historical anomaly when it came out in 2003, it helped pave the way for so much of the other representation that we celebrate and take for granted today. And so that is where we start our conversation. Now, just to note, this originally aired on the Luminary app last year, so you will hear Carson talk about things like travel. All of that was done before the pandemic. Just a heads up so I don't get anybody into trouble. All right, from The Advocate magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ and A. I want to start with Queer Eye, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Perfect. You were on the original. It came out in 2003. Uh, so yes, I was on the original show they, um, that came out in 2003 on Bravo. And it was such a different time for queer people then. What was your expectation for the show? None of us had ever done television. So I literally, I had a great job at Ralph Lauren and I said, I'm going to take a couple of days off and make this pilot for a show. And my boss was like, great, have fun. And I was like, I'm sure I'll be back. And, you know, it was a year in the making, like, because Bravo was acquired by NBC Universal and it was a long time. And then finally they said, we want to make this show. Can you quit your job? And I was like, do you have dental insurance? Uh, which they didn't, but I, I did quit my job. I didn't have any expectations, certainly as a queer person for it to make a like societal impact, which it did. I literally, I just wanted to get people out of like mullets and pleated khakis and uh, the uh, somewhat subversive, societal impact that the show had was really just um, secondary. Like nobody had that as an agenda. Honestly, we just wanted to help these straight guys either get the look or get the job or get the girl. So was there one big moment when you realized like the impact it had? Um, I don't think we realized the impact. I mean, obviously we knew it was like, it was a pop culture kind of phenomenon because the show had launched maybe in July, I think, I think July 23rd, 2003-ish. And the next week we were on The Tonight Show and we were doing Ellen. And that, like nowadays, there is like overnight success because of like the internet and all of the social media. We didn't have that back then. So uh, we were kind of like an over one week success that was very surprising, I think, to all of us. And at that time, queer was still a slur. Right, yeah. I mean, I have to give credit to the show's creators, Dave Metzler and David Collins from Scout Productions because they um, received a lot of like, a lot of no's from other networks, I think, perhaps partly because of the name or because it was just a very progressive idea. I think there was some some pushback even after the order happened about like, oh, is the name too strong or whatever. They were very 
strong about not changing the name and saying, listen, queer means um, something extraordinary, something different, looking at things from a different point of view. It is not necessarily a bad thing. And they also came from the perspective, and one was straight and one was gay, the, the creators of the show, that, you know, there's also power in reclaiming that word and not making it a bad thing. And I experienced that firsthand because before the show, you know, maybe when I was like in high school, kids would see me at the mall and be like, ew, there's that queer guy. And then like after the show, I would literally go to the same mall in my hometown in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And people were quite jubilant, like there's that queer guy. So it really did um, work in kind of putting a more positive spin on the word. Uh, and I credit, you know, them for for sticking to their guns. Well, I was thinking about that. Like, I didn't know if it was crazy to connect queer eye and queerest folk to us right. now using this word as right. this umbrella term. I, it probably is. Yeah. I mean, I think queer has always been, you know, even in my peer group, we were using the word queer in a very positive way. There was, you know, queer people and the queer pride. I mean, it's always been something that has been a little bit of a reclaimed word. And then I just think that maybe because they were names of two kind of mainstream television shows, Shows, the word became a little bit more mainstream and became more positive with the masses. Yeah. Whereas in our own community, we were using it in a positive way. And while we're connecting dots, I don't think it was insignificant that the show came out just a few years after Matthew Shepard was murdered and right. just a few years coming out of like the AIDS crisis. Yeah, no, it was, it was a very different time in that we were still reeling from these, you know, big, gigantic things. I mean, one, you know, was very much centered on homophobia and the other was just, you know, a massive health crisis that also fueled some unnecessary homophobia. So, I mean, we didn't think we were pioneers, but it was definitely a different time. Yeah, I just mean to see then like five gay guys on TV and the show has nothing to do with like dying or violence. Mm -hmm. Actually, just five gay guys who happened to really be themselves and who were reality, you know, on a reality-based show, we weren't playing characters and we weren't um, using anybody else's words. We were just five gay guys who happened to be, I think, pretty good at their jobs in interior design or fashion or grooming and just um, helping helping people. And that dynamic too was a little bit different. Like sometimes even me personally, I, I would maybe be a little bit um, scared of big, you know, straight, macho, straight guys. And um, maybe they had some misconceptions about about me and we were allowed to have a dialogue on the show and help each other out. And I think that was really one of the reasons why the show was received so well is because we were um, understanding each other and and helping each other. Oh, not only were you introducing being gay to the world, but mm -hmm. you were introducing like nice straight people to gay people. Right, and hair product, which is so important. Equally important, I Equally, would say. Equally, I would say, yes. Yeah, and that's the power of being on TV. It, it makes you visible. And some people are like, I've never met gay people until I watched you on the show. It's like, have you never had your hair highlighted? Have you never been on an airplane? But visibility like that is so important because they just see you as your authentic self. And they say, well, I like this person and they don't seem that different from me. And why shouldn't they be able to get married or adopt kids or um, have the exact same rights as me? This seems crazy. And that's what moves the needle forward. And some of the criticism of the show at the time said that it played into these cliches of the mm -hmm, gay community. Mm -hmm. Was that something that you and the cast ever talked about? Um, yeah, and we were asked that question often. And I would just say, listen, no one's telling me how to speak or what words to say or what to do or how to act. I'm just being myself. And there's nothing stereotypical about being your authentic self. And if you think that gay people are great at designing interiors and uh, styling clothes or being a fashion designer, 
I think it's a compliment. So I will take it all day long. You know, we are an artistic community that's really good traditionally at those things. And there are some of us who have don't have the gay aesthetic gene either. It, it doesn't always present itself, but I think we did great work. And honest, at the end of the day, we were just being ourselves. So to say that we were being stereotypical was not really accurate because what we were being was who we are. Who were the other out gay people on TV at that time? Oh gosh, well, there's all, you know, Ellen, of course, who I think was, you know, such an amazing pioneer who actually, you know, said the words, I am gay, like on TV, like in a very... It was just a very easy way to kind of like introduce your outness to America. Uh, who else was out? I mean, there was Pedro Zamora, who was on The Real World, who I thought was so incredibly courageous. When people ask me like who some of my like role models are that I saw on TV, I would always cite him because, you know, he was on The Real World. It was probably pre-2000 and um, he was openly gay and he was um, living with HIV and was just a very candid, brave beautiful person. And it was, we were really lucky to see someone like that on television. Uh, and who else? I mean, the skipper Gilligan, weren't they gay? I mean, but like, I know you're joking. They shared but, like, a hammock. It was hard to like name other ones. It is hard to name other ones. There weren't, they were, there were certainly gay characters, you know, in Will and Grace and Queer as Folk before uh, Queer for the Straight Guy, but there weren't a lot and they weren't necessarily real people that that young people could identify with and say, well, I can grow up and I can be this. And then we've, since then, we've had uh, sports figures, which is so amazing because kids can say, well, of course I can play professional baseball. Billy Bean, um, someone like that was very courageous in being out and telling their story. Um, or they can say, I can be a, I can be a, a political figure um, or a senator. So it just, you know, having people be out and be visible in different walks of life is really important because when you see it, you think to yourself, oh, I can do that too. And when the show came out at that time, was there a community of you, of the people who were out and in Hollywood? I don't ever really feel like we felt like we were part of Hollywood because we were based in New York and we worked in reality TV. So it wasn't like we were hanging out with like a bunch of actors in LA. Although we did get to come here and go to like the Emmys and things like that. And there was a bit of a fraternity. I remember Max Muchnick had us over to his house for dinner. Ellen had reached out. We went to her house. Um, so it was definitely support. I didn't know if anybody reached out and was like, hey, listen, you're in the public eye. You're young. Here's what to expect. Right. Here's your gay mafia card. And we meet every Thursday at um, Fred Siegel. No, that didn't happen. And n I don't think anybody said, here's what to expect. No, I don't think there were like mentors like that. Although people were very lovely, like I said, like Ellen and Max and people who were out and in Hollywood were extremely uh, supportive. That's really nice. Yeah, it was lovely. I just wonder if like now there are so many more out queer people. Right. If like we've lost that supportive supportiveness, uh, for lack of better words. Right. I mean, I think that's the double-edged sword of becoming more mainstream is that you become less of a community sometimes because you're more amalgamated into the greater society. But I still think we have many, you know, many great organizations like GLAAD. I always come to LA almost every year to do the AIDS walk. Um, there are certain things in our community that have unified us in the past that we can still take part in to, you know, remember that we're a very special community who has always um, been artistic and creative and has taken care of our own and um, been vocal politically. So um, I think there's still great places to feel that sense of community.
And with how much things have changed, I don't want to say that everything's perfect because right. we can agree it's right. not. Right. However, there was a cultural relevance to Queer Eye and um, a, a phenomenon that happened when mm-hmm. that show came out. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the function of the new Queer Eye, the reboot? Uh, I think it's similar, and I think, you know, it's been successful because the show still has that same DNA, which is really uh, a group of five gay men who people may think are very, very different from them arriving on the scene of a straight guy or gay guy or anybody in maybe a less progressive town, perhaps, you know, and, and, you know, this version of the show, they go to places like rural Missouri and rural Georgia but it's really still the same show. It's five gay guys who meet somebody that's maybe feels that they're quite different from them. But at the end of the day, they realize that they are more alike than they are different. And they each can help each other and have something to to bring to the table. And I think that's kind of how it crystallizes. That's It's really the same kind of show. Was it ever part of the discussion to bring back the original cast? The original guest, like... Cast. Sorry. Oh, the original cast. I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, that Netflix wanted a new show with a new cast. Um, and I think it's it's important that, you know, that show has always been about looking at things from a different point of view. And I think that um, it's a different time. And I think having a different kind of perspective from a new cast has been really um, effective and has worked great for the show. What is that new perspective, though, that they bring? Um, I just, a a different way of growing up. These are guys that grew up with the original Queer Eye and having it, you know, having out gay role models on TV. So they have it, they've grown up with a different life. I think they're much younger. That is a massive difference that like, I think it's hard to process that you grew up and didn't have out people on TV. Not really. Not really. Here and there. Yeah, but not many. Right. Yeah, not many, especially when you were growing up when you were a little kid and maybe you felt like you were this different kind of person and no one really looked or talked like you or certainly wasn't portrayed in a positive light. I mean, I did not watch the original Queer Eye um, mm-hmm. very specifically because I grew up in the South. And right. I thought if someone sees me watching Queer Eye, they'll clock right. me. Right, right. It'll be, it'll be like you're being outed. Yeah. Like... I was the same about getting the subscription to the International Mail catalog. With me not watching the show, it's mm-hmm. funny because you are actually the only original cast member that I can name. And, right. I, and I don't mean that in a shady no, way no, at all. No. I just mean like factually, you've been on TV so much more than all the others. Uh, sure. I mean, there everybody on the show has been very successful. I, I'm not saying like not successful. I'm just saying like um, you've done more TV than the other ones. Maybe, maybe. I do a lot of different TV. Yeah. Like a lot of different um, demographics and different yeah. genres. And yeah, from game shows to The Apprentice to, to Dancing um, my the own Star. series. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, was that your, like, was that important to you leaving the first Queer Eye to like maintain that? Um, having a job is always great. You know, I was so lucky because Queer Eye was an amazing uh, uh, foray into doing television. I had never had any uh, any inkling that I would work on TV. Even just trying out for the show was a bit of a, a whim because I had a, a, a great job working in the fashion space and I thought I would always probably work for Ralph Lauren or a company like that. So every time I would get another offer, I work on another show, I would be like, oh my God, I can't believe they still think I can do TV. But that's been going on for about 17 years now. And uh, I'm very, very lucky. And I, and I get to do things that are ultimately at this point in my career, I love to do projects that are fun and creative and 
that are enjoyable to do. And TV, like every other job, some parts are great. And then some parts are like, oh, this part's a drag, but most of it's great. And it's a, it's a fun job to have. So with all those shows we named, including your new right. Bravo show, Get a Room, right. including the new Freeform show, Rap Battle, mm-hmm. you said you're just getting these offers. Are those, those are only people coming to you? Oh, no. I mean, it's not like they're like beating my door down. You, just like any other job, you know, you build a list of um, of contacts and you're, you network with people and you in showbiz, you must constantly be cultivating jobs and opportunities and the best way to do it is to create your own opportunities like i kind of created the opportunity for get a room with carson and tom because i had bought a house that was in the country i was going to renovate myself i was terrible i was like i need to have have tom help me i want to learn kind of this craft and we both kind of came together and said this might be a great project for tv and we created that thing and helped, you know, had great partners that we had worked with in the past. Um, One of our producers from Queer Eye actually partnered with us and we were able to sell that to Bravo. Again, another great partner who we both kept a great relationship with. So it's all of those things. It's working hard, it's showing up, it's doing good on each job prior and then always looking for opportunities. Oh, I got you. I just didn't know if you were saying that there was all like passive opportunities just like coming at you. Mm-mm. No, no, no. Most opportunities come because because you, I, in my world, because I worked with somebody on a former project and they said, oh, I'm doing this project. Would you be interested? You'd be great. And then you get involved early. Even on RuPaul's Drag Race, which I'm so lucky to work on. I mean, that's one of the mantras of the show is like, work hard, be prepared. If you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. Um, that kind of Ruism has been very, very helpful in my career. That show is another cultural juggernaut. It is. Like Queer Eye? Yes. Do you find that most people now recognize you from that? Uh, many people do. A young, it, It's really, it kind of divides like... Um, older people might know me from, uh, you know, being on the Oprah Winfrey show as a regular or, you know, the Bravo viewer, which happens to be usually like sassy women from all of like kind of the housewife um, world that that's, you know, recognize me from Get A Room. Um, fabulous young queer people and kids and cool kids will recognize me from Drag Race. Um, so it's it's kind of segmented, but, but a lot of people watch Drag Race. I mean, you know, I'll get like, you know, 55-year-old Teamsters who are delivering furniture to a show and be like, hey, you're that guy from that uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. I love you. And I'm like, you watch that? Um, but yeah, it, it's been, especially since we've been on VH1. The show's exploded in the last couple of years in terms of becoming like a mainstream show. It has, it has. How have you seen it change from the inside? I don't think the show has really changed. I think obviously the key to that show is RuPaul himself. And I tell everyone... Um, that, you know, it's one of those organizations where the good stuff comes from the top down. Um, Rue and the producers and everybody involved with the show are just great people with the right intentions. And I think the show has stayed really true to itself, whether you watch season one or season 12, which is coming up. It's really, you know, it's always uh, like drag, kind of poking fun and satirizing what's going on in the popular culture. And that keeps it fresh. Uh, Rue is an amazing talent and we have um, incredible contestants every season. But I think the crux of the show is still the same. And I think it's become so popular because we've had a great partner with um, Viacom and being on VH1 has certainly expanded the base of the show. But also the culture has kind of caught up to the show. 
and um, to drag. And it's, it's, you know, drag used to be such a cloistered form of entertainment that mostly only gay people saw in nightclubs. And now because of the show, uh, people get to see it, you know, young people get to see it and, and young kids and people all over the world and senior citizens, my parents that are in their 80s, they watch it. But because of me, but they also love Rue. And um, it's just shown a light on a really creative, amazing art form. And I think people love seeing that on TV. All these shows we've been talking about that you work on, a, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot, right. of, a lot of them take you out of New York City. Yes, they do. And I just wonder, like, how does it make it hard to maintain relationships? Yes, it does. I mean, you have to, um, you know, life is, you know, all of these shows that we're talking about from Drag Race to Queer Eye to uh, Rap Battle on Freeform are a lot about time management. And in the creative world, like you can constantly just be like, create, 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 and forget about all the other things like, you know, cleaning your bathroom and like taking your friends out for their birthday. You have to maintain it. And, you know, I am traveling all over the world for a lot of things, but you have to prioritize and make time for your friends or your relationship. It's very important that you um, nurture those things and water all of your gardens so that they continue to grow. I, and I asked that because on Hollywood Medium, yes, you jokingly said, will I ever have a love life? Mm, and mm-hmm. I just wondered if that wasn't actually a joke or not. Oh, that's not a joke. That's a very, very, that's where it turns tragic. I have had them and I will have them again. I don't have one currently. Do you? So if you know anybody, if you're listening, you can find me on Grindr at, no, I'm kidding. Sort uh, of. What is your grinder name? No. Um, what, does, is that because like what I said, like you're not in New York City a lot or is it other uh, reasons? I think it's because I, I work a lot. And like I was saying, you know, I need to follow my own advice. Like if you want something, you have to kind of, if you want abs, you have to go to the gym and not eat carbs. Basically, if you want a boyfriend, you have to like find somebody and invest time of yourself. Um, if you want an amazing career, you have to like prepare for it and then do the work. So Everything requires doing the work. So I need to do the work and also make the time and make it a priority. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Grindr. Are you on Grindr? No. Okay. I just can't imagine seeing you on there. No, but you might see me in other places. Um, While we're talking about this yes. subject, are you uncomfortable yet? Can I keep no, going? No, no, I'm not. Okay. Just kick me when it happens. It's going to be hard to make me uncomfortable. Has anyone ever tried to call you daddy? I think people have already called me daddy or maybe even zaddy, which I'm not. Is that like a young daddy? Oh, I'll take zaddy. I don't know. I just, it zaddy. just seems like gay men over a certain age are yes. automatically lumped into that daddy. Right, category. right. And now I'm 50. So I really feel like now I deserve it. Do you like that? Once you're into your 40s, it makes me feel weird about dating people that are like a lot younger than me. Because after 50, like then you could almost like, People have been that I've been on dates with have been born like after I graduated from college or like it's my mom's birthday tomorrow. I'm like, oh, how old is she? And they'll be like, she's 40. And I was like, stop. I can't be older than your mom. So, yeah, it does make it a little weird. You turned 50 just a few weeks ago. I did. Was that a big moment? I didn't think it was. And I was too busy having a great time and uh, a party with my friends in Cabo. And um, I didn't really absorb it, but uh, this is going to be like the gayest answer in the world. I went to see the movie Judy, okay, a gay icon. 
Anyway, I saw it at the end. Um, there's, you know, they do those sad lines, you know, like of, of text across the screen. And like, we're all crying from the last number, or at least me and the other gays in the theater in Palm Springs. And, um, and it says like, you know, she died like on such and such a date. It's the Stonewall date basically in June of 1969. And she was 47 years old. And I was like, oh my God, I've outlived Judy Garland. She was only 47. So I thought to myself, just making it to 50. And you hear this all the time for people who like reach milestones that they're so lucky to be around because you have friends that are no longer here or you see these icons who were so impactful in the world and they only got 47 years. So I feel like I have another 50 to do great stuff. I'm so, so lucky to have made it this far. So that is a wild thing to think about. Yeah. When you see it in print on a screen in front of you and you're actually older than that person, I've actually had more years on the earth than Judy Garland. So think about that. Did doing Queer Eye help or hurt you in terms of dating? I think it definitely helps. I mean, you you become, uh, I mean, I was always very popular and I was always good at dating and, you know, I am not shy. So if I see something I want, I would go right up to the person. They would usually be like, ah, uh, scram. I think doing the Queer Eye thing at least gives you something in common and to talk about right away and you're a somewhat recognizable face. So I think it probably helped. The the thing about like sometimes if you are well-known or like semi-famous or whatever it is, sometimes people feel like they know you, the complete person from what they've seen on TV. So there's a lot of preconceived conceptions about you that you're like, mm, that's not necessarily true. Like people think they know you before they know you. Which gotcha. And there's like an assumed familiarity. Not even familiarity, but just assume like this is the kind of person you are. Like this is your character. This is like, they think they know everything about you. And I'm like, you know, you're only on TV for like, if you're lucky, you're on for 43 minutes in an episode and you're definitely not on that much. So there's a lot more to the person than what you see. I was wondering about that because when I talked to Peter Page, who was on Queer as Folk, right, yes. he played, the, you know, like the twink. He played the right, femme guy on that right, show. Right. And even though it was a character. Very similar to my character. I mean, me. Well, actually, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yes. No, it is. And at that time, he said that no guy would have talked to him who at a gay bar because they thought it was like femphobia. Right, right. And I didn't know if like, you had any experience with like that too. Um, I probably had my share of that because I was like the outrageous, like flamey, like, which is what I am. So if you don't like that on TV, you're not going to like it in real life. Um, so it, I suppose the positive is that it weeds out the assholes. <laughs> that is a positive. Right. You said that you've not always been this confident of a person? No, I wasn't. I was very, very shy Until as a kid. when? Until about um, junior high. And then I realized that, that um, um, and this is, again, like the a benefit of like growing up gay and there's all the bad stuff of like thinking that your family's not going to love you and worrying about being outed and never really thinking that you're normal and you won't have... Like growing up, I, gay people didn't get married. So I thought I'll never get married. And gay people didn't have kids. I was like, I'll never have kids. You don't even think about those things that you're not, that you can't have, you're not allowed to have. But the good thing, the flip side of that, I think everything in life, like the terrible things sometimes often yield good things. And by the time I was like in middle school, I had realized if I didn't want to get picked on or if I didn't want to literally get hung inside a locker by like a bully, I would have to diffuse the situation sooner. So if I could make people laugh, um, whether it was being the class clown or like um, saying something sassy to the substitute teacher, whatever it was to deflect 
and to save me, I would do it. And that really cultivated a sense of humor and timing and sassiness and all of the stuff that helped me in my career, um, which is really what people really enjoy about me. And that was a conscious thing that you developed. No, it wasn't a conscious thing. It was a survival mechanism. And it was like, I must have gotten a laugh at some point. And I, well, that worked. And then you consciously but subconsciously keep doing it. And that really um, made things easier for me. So by like high school, I was like kind of popular. And then like college, it was great. So, and then moving to New York City was, you know, was heaven. Where did you come out in that timeline? Um, I came out obviously to all like my friends and everything, probably in the early 90s in New York City, because I think so many kids who come from small towns, um, everybody goes to their Mecca. And for me, you know, being from the Northeast, the Mecca was New York City. And, you know, if you're from the South, people will go to Atlanta. Or if you're like from Texas, you would go to like Dallas. And then you can kind of recreate your own life there. And you can just finally be whoever you want to be. And so you always assumed you would leave Allentown, Pennsylvania. I did. I did. Yeah. I, I, um, I went to college in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and have a degree in fine art and finance. And then I had a job lined up in New York City before I graduated. I was like, I don't care what I do. I just want to go there. And I did. And it was like May 1991. So if Queer Eye had never happened, like, right. what, do you, what did you assume you'd be doing with your life? I assumed I would still be working in fashion or become an interior designer or move back to like where I'm from and have like, you know, a farm and be a gentleman farmer. And all of those things have still happened. I've just, I've just done them kind of in a parallel life at being on TV as well. Yeah. And with your farm, uh, and you're a horseback rider. Right. Excuse right. me. You're a world champion. Yes. I did rider. that long. Yeah. That was really my first, like, that was my first um, brush with like greatness, I guess, <laughs> if you can say that. I, I think that's such like, a fun fact. Yeah. Um, so, like, with your, like, I don't know if this is a ridiculous question. Right. But do you see a connection between your love of fashion and your love of horses? It, you know, the connection is a love of beauty and being in a seat and like loving, like, I love anything that's, you know, beautiful and well-crafted. It can be furniture. It can be um, a piece of art. It could be a horse. I think, you know, I just, I'm a lover of beauty and um, it doesn't really matter what form it takes. And so that is what initially attracted you to horses. Uh, yeah, there was, there was a certain beauty, but also like I grew up on a horse farm. So my like ABC after school special is like, you know, me alone with the horses, like having conversations, like, why does everyone hate me? Um, so I've always had a connection to like animals and, and the non-judgmental, like unconditional love of like, and people get it with dogs or whatever. I just, you know, I happen to be around horses and they are um, so magnificent and so gorgeous and so powerful. I mean, they, they represent a lot of things. That is so interesting. Yeah. And then the fashion thing, because I grew up in a horse world and competing um, and knowing lots of different people, it certainly helped inform my sensibility for a career at Ralph Lauren. And I think when I walked in there, they're like, wait a minute, um, you already have, you know, look like you were meant to be here. I'm like, yeah, it's called merchantainment. Oh, you had that aesthetic already. That's very funny. Yeah, and I had, I, I just, I understood that culture and I, I liked that kind of, you know, that look. I love that. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much You're for talking so to us. You're so welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you.
And that was Carson Cressley. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you did, please help us spread the word on social media. Send a tweet, post an Insta story. Also, why not take a second right now and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts? Ranking us five stars and leaving a comment on Apple Podcasts is a big way you can help other people find our show. And that makes our team very happy. So thank you for that. Now, if you want to recommend a guest, we're actively booking for the new year, which feels totally crazy to say. But if you want to recommend someone, come find me on Twitter. I tweet from at JeffMasters1. The show tweets from at LGBTQPod. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. And we post transcripts of our interviews on both sites. So if you want to check those out, go to advocate.com and glad.org. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next week. Bye. Thank you. You're a good interviewer. <laughs>